This is episode 41 of Ripe Good Scholar, the sources for Twelfth Night. By Barnaby Rich, gentlemen. Imprinted by Robert Wally, 1581. At eight different points, I thought the title was over. Yeah, I know. It's wow. the best. It might oh be my. my favorite Tudor title. Uh, he did not have the skill to be a 1930s con man, Barnaby Rich. This is Stephen Greenblatt, author of Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics, and you were listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. Since we just celebrated the Epiphany, or Twelfth Night, we thought it would be worthwhile to visit the famous Shakespeare text of the same name. Like most of Shakespeare's work, the story was borrowed from another source. In this case, it was an English prose version of an Italian play. The prose adaptation, Apollonia Sincilla, was written by an English soldier, Barnaby Rich. Today, Eli and I are going to look at Rich's text to see what Shakespeare borrowed and what he left out. By closely examining Shakespeare's sources, we can get a glimpse into his mind the mind of a genius. It can also provide some unique insights into the text itself. For this episode, I read Rich's Apollonius and Scylla, an original of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, edited by Morton Luce. If you want to check out that book and so much more, head over to ripegoodscholar.com ep41. Now, let's head to Constantinople. Today we're going to be talking about the play Twelfth Night and its source material. Right, that's the sequel to Eleventh Night, right? It's called Twelfth Night or what you will. Most people believe it's called Twelfth Night because it was probably a Christmas play, which is why we're doing it now, because we just, uh, when this episode comes out, we'll be just past January 6th, the Epiphany, the twelfth day of Christmas. Ah, the Twelfth Night. Yes. How is this a Christmas play in any way? It's not. I think it was called Twelfth Night because all throughout the Christmas season, a lot of court performances would happen. This is probably one of them, which is probably why it's called Twelfth Night or What You Will. What You Will and As You Like It are just such... Those are the names given to a play by a playwright who was sick of trying to think up of a name. Call it what you will. Call it as you like it. Interestingly, though, the first ever recorded performance of Twelfth Night was on February 2nd, 1602, which is notably not Twelfth Night. Yeah, I believe that is the 38th night. But I think it's reasonable to assume that it had been performed previously because it was performed by the Lord Chamberlain's men for a London legal society called Middle Temple as a part of just some celebration they were having. Because obviously being February, the globe was not open. Well, I mean, it was always open, but it was not 
holding performances. Because it's an open theater. This is the first recorded performance because one of the members of this legal society, John Manningham, um, recorded the event in his diary. And he said, At our feast, we had a play called Twelfth Night, or What You Will. Much like the Comedy of Errors, or Nanekamai in Plautus, but most like and near to that, an Italian called Ingiani. The Ingiani is referring to a, the G, I, I don't speak Italian, so like the G, G Ingiani, Ingiani, um, by Bandello, trans, translated by Bella Forest. <laughs> So a play by Bandello. Now that's not the source we'll be talking about today because most scholars agree and we'll get into why as we delve more into the story, but most scholars agree that likely Shakespeare was working off of Apollonius and Scylla, which was a story that appeared in Barnaby Rich. Barnaby Rich sounds like a fake name. Like, that's the name of a con man in an early 1930s film. Probably, but he was real. He was a soldier. But first, for this episode, I read Rich's Apollonius and Scylla, an original of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, which was, like, edited and commentary provided by Morton Luce, or Luce, I don't know, L-U-C-E, which was very helpful. And he had some really interesting insights into Shakespeare's writing style as taking from all of the various versions. There's stuff seen in Shakespeare that's only seen in the Italian play. There's stuff seen in Shakespeare that's only seen in Bella Forest. And then there's stuff only seen in Shakespeare, seen in Shakespeare that's only seen in Rich. And an article I was reading on the Royal Shakespeare Company's education site by Dr. Will Tosh Uh, He said of Manningham's diary, this contemporary report is hugely valuable because it gives us a sense of how a 17th century person understood the play by highlighting what seemed to him the most striking parts of the story. It also gives us an indication of the other plays and texts that Shakespeare consulted when he wrote Twelfth Night. Which I think is interesting as we look at Shakespeare's writing style and his sources, that his audience, at least parts of his audience, would have been acutely aware of what sources he was using. Yeah, that that is interesting. That the, the idea that, yeah, he stole from everybody, but also it was expected. And when people saw plays, they came in expecting to see takes on other people's works. Exactly. Now, of course, this legal society member talks about the original Italian play. And I think that's in part one, that's probably what he was familiar with. And two, Barnaby Rich was actually not that far ahead of Shakespeare. This book was published in 1581. Apollonius and Scylla is the second book in his volume titled Rich, his farewell to military profession, containing very pleasant discourses fit for a peaceable time, gathered together for the only delight of the courteous gentlewomen, both of England and Ireland, for whose only pleasure they were collected together and unto whom they are directed and dedicated by Barnaby Rich, gentlemen. Imprinted by Robert Wally, 1581. At eight different points, I thought the title was over. Yeah, I know. It's the best. It might be my my favorite Tudor title. Uh, He did not have the skill to be a 1930s con man. 
Barnaby Rich. No, he did not. But I will say that reading that whole title, you know, there's a part where he says, for only the delight of the courteous gentlewomen, both of England and Ireland, which I found interesting because as I was reading it, he directly addresses women multiple times, which I just found interesting because very rarely in these writings are we directly addressing women, not the reader. Specifically women. Why, why do you think that was? Some some of the stuff I read said it was addressed to women and like soldiers, but in the title, he only mentions women. It's strange that it's addressed to women and soldiers because you don't think of Tudor women and Tudor soldiers as having much in common. Well, and I will say that in the title, he only says women. He doesn't say soldiers in it. I imagine that whoever was writing that article had read the entire volume, which I did not. I just read Apollonius and Zilla. But the entire book reflects on the ideas of masculinity and femininity. So if that's the scope we're going towards of expectations of women, perhaps then addressing it to women makes more sense. I see. Now, Apollonius and Scylla specifically focuses on the themes of service, courtship, and gender, like we see in Twelfth Night. Yeah. So this is, as I said before, where Shakespeare lifts the bulk of the Viola story. Interestingly, the side plot with Malvolio, we're not sure where that came from. I mean, it is a ridiculous bit of clowning that doesn't quite fit the rest of the story, so it feels like Shakespeare. Yeah, but a lot of times he gets his random from his sources, which always makes me laugh. But before we fully dive into the story, I want to take a moment. Let's get to know Barnaby. Let's get to know Barnaby Rich. Did he tell people, name's Barnaby Rich, because I'm born to be rich, baby. I don't think so. Okay, well, he should have. Especially because he was a soldier, so he probably wasn't born rich. True. Anyway, we don't know exactly when he was born or exactly when he died, um, but he was probably born around 1540 and died around 1620. Now, as a writer, he was part of the generation before Shakespeare. This, this generation of writers that was right before Shakespeare. He was not a university wit, though. No? No, as Martin Luce, Luce, I don't know, said... As a man of letters, he was self-taught. He knew French and Italian, but not the classics. And he could hardly be called a learned man. Well, he only knew French and Italian, like, pff, man, moron. Ba barely even sentient. Now, he was primarily known as a military man. He reached particular notoriety for his service in Ireland, um, which at the time Elizabeth was trying to conquer. Yeah, no, it seemed like every once in a while, one of the English monarchs was just like, let's conquer Ireland. But he also fought in France and Holland. And actually, what's kind of funny is that he returned to military service following his book, Farewell to a Military Profession. He was a fairly prolific writer and would frequently write about his military career, especially Ireland. He wrote like a survey of Ireland. A survey of Ireland. Did I show shoot you so um i had to include this because it was a little painful but <laughs> kind of made me chuckle in a dark humor sort of way rich felt that the troubles in ireland were due to religion and a lack of consistency and firmness from the english government oh boy <laughs> oh boy barnaby that's an opinion held by englishmen today like, oh my god, this is the most English opinion of Ireland I've ever read. But he did also write some romances and obviously fictional works as well. Now, were they 
romances between soldiers and gentlewomen of England and Ireland? And did he draw his face on the cover? Obviously. In total, we have 24 published works, which when you consider that some might be lost, it's actually a pretty good turnout. Yeah, that's not bad at all. So now we'll actually get into the bulk of Apollonius and Scylla and, and see where it is similar and different from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The start of the story is not in Shakespeare. It takes place prior to the start of Shakespeare's play. So Twelfth Night starts with a shipwreck where Viola assumes her brother has drowned and she is the lone survivor with the captain and decides to disguise herself as a male and get into the service of the duke her brother was supposed to serve. This all in Apollonius and Scylla is happening prior to that shipwreck. First, we start with a different shipwreck. Jeez, how many shipwrecks were happening back then? I don't know, apparently just the Mediterranean was riddled with shipwrecks. I mean, fair, it was. Apollonius, who was a duke of somewhere, <laughs> kind of like most of Shakespeare's plays, he's a duke. He's a duke of somewhere. There were just lots of dukes all over the place. <laughs> uh, you can't you can't throw a rock without hitting a duke these days. <laughs> That's really funny to me. Oh, my word! <laughs> so he is on his way back to Constantinople following some, what sounds like crusading. He fought the Turks, which I'm just like, that sounds like crusading. Yeah, sounds like it. He's on his way back to Constantinople where apparently just a lot of dukes hang out and other nobility because it was still in good Christian hands at the uh, time. I see. But on his way past the Isle of Cyprus... His ships get hit with a storm, and they have to not crash, but they have to land in Cyprus and then stay there till their ships are fixed. Okay, so their ships were damaged and they had to go to port in Cyprus. Yes. We got there. I know boat words. The governor of Cyprus, who is notably not a duke, <laughs> um, Pontus, uh, welcomed Apollonius with open arms and treated him as an honored guest the whole time the ships were getting fixed. Now, Pontus had, wait for it, two children. What? A boy and a girl. What? Silvio was off fighting in Africa because there was just a lot of warring happening, I suppose. It was, you know, the Mediterranean. There was a lot of warring happening. So anyway, Silvio's not there, um, but his daughter, Scylla, is there. Ah. Of course... It is worth noting that Silvio and Scylla looked very much alike. In the face, you could hardly tell them apart. Now, was she just like square-jawed or was he... Now, they mention how beautiful she is, so I think he was just a feminine man. Oh, he was he was very pretty. He was a pretty man. Scylla pretty much immediately falls in love with Apollonius, like you do. I mean, yeah. But he was still... In this war mindset, you know, he was just focused on getting his ships fixed and getting back home. He wasn't he wasn't worried about the ladies. He was on his way back from the Crusades. He was in that war mind. If there's one thing I know about soldiers, it's that they absolutely have no time to spend on women. Exactly. Eventually his ships are fixed and he sails off back to Constantinople and poor Scylla is just left there on Cyprus being sad. Now, Scylla doesn't remain sad for long, although this is the point at which Rich notes that he will keep it short. I will here for brevity's sake omit to make repetition of the long and dolorous discourse recorded by Scylla for the sudden departure of Apollonius. 
I I like it. It's also just such a long-winded way of saying I'm not going to go into this. Well, yeah, but can you imagine how long the original was then? Oh, God. Scylla decides that she is going to follow Apollonius to Constantinople. To do this, she elicits the help of her faithful servant, Pedro. So Pedro goes and finds them a place on a ship that's headed to Constantinople. And she disguises herself as Pedro's sister. So a woman of lower class. All right, I'm with you. The captain falls in love with Scylla. Oh, no. So he invites her to stay in his chambers where it's much more comfortable. And she'll sleep much better. With that D. I think at first he starts with like, I won't be in here. And then he's like, but what if we got married though? She turns him down on the marriage proposal for a couple obvious reasons. One being that she is in love with Apollonius. Yeah, she is traveling across the Mediterranean to be with someone else. And two, she is of a higher social class. Than him. Wait, wait a minute. You're telling me that the daughter of the governor of Cyprus is of a higher status than some freaking sailor? Excuse me, he's a captain? That's just a sailor who's in charge. <laughs> then when she turns down the captain, he reacts in a logical way of saying, well, I'm the captain and I get what I want, so get ready for this D. Oh, Yeah, that sounds like men. She convinces him, we don't need to do this right now. Like, you can come back later and we'll do it. And he goes, okay. So then in the most reasonable reaction of the moment, she decides that she will try to off herself in his lodgings. Tutor people, stop jumping straight to suicide. Yeah, you could at least try murdering him first. Or like, go talk to Pedro. Before the captain can return, the ship is caught in a storm. And this is where Shakespeare will start coming in. The ship is caught in a storm. It's torn apart. Pedro drowns. Aww. It's, that's just unnecessary. They should have kept Pedro in. Scylla survives by clutching onto a chest that was in the captain's quarters. I don't really know how this chest was like floating with her weight on it because it apparently also had a bunch of gold in it. Yeah, that that loses me because I feel like the gold would have been denser than water. One would think. She rides this chest onto the shore. She doesn't see anybody else, so she assumes she's alone. So she takes the captain's gold and clothes that were apparently also in this chest. Listen, if the captain were alive, I would encourage her to take his golden clothes. <laughs> While in Shakespeare's play happens under much friendlier circumstances, the sea captain is the one that provides supplies to Viola when they land. I, I would say that in the, his brief appearance, that sea captain is a much better person. <laughs> I, I would assume that she wasn't so chill with him if he did the same thing the sea captain did. Yeah. This is where Scylla decides she's going to disguise herself as a man for safety. Since she ran into shenaniganery on a boat, who knows what will happen if she's just wandering around the city alone. That's fair. So she dresses as a man and starts to go by Silvio, her brother's name. That will clearly never cause any trouble. Not even a little. She starts serving the Duke and um, quickly becomes one of his most trusted servants. This is a moment where I felt very much reminded of Twelfth Night. And above the rest of his servants was very diligent and attendant upon him. The which the duke perceiving began likewise to grow into good liking with the diligence of his man and therefore made him one of his chamber. 
Who but Silvio, then, was most near about him, and helping him to make him ready in the morning, in the setting of his ruffs, in keeping of his chamber. Which also is funny, because she, like, most deaf saw him naked. I gotta say, compared to Shakespeare, Scylla's a creeper. But it reminded me of an exchange between one of the Duke's servants, Valentine and Viola, being here Cesario. Uh, Valentine says... If the Duke continues these favors towards you, Cesario, you are like to be much advanced. He hath known you but three days, and already you are no stranger, Viola. You either fear his humor or my negligence that, that you call in question the continuance of his love. Is he inconstant, sir, in his favors? Valentine, no, believe me. While obviously not an exact lift, you know, it kind of reminded me of that. Yeah. That's how Shakespeare summarized that she very quickly became one of his most trusted servants. Are, are you telling me that someone was able to get to the point faster than Barnaby? And keep in mind, Barnaby was faster than Bellaport. Oh, God. Now, this is where the play aligns almost perfectly with Apollonius and Scylla. Scylla is sent on behalf of Apollonius to court Jelena, who is a recently widowed noblewoman in Constantinople. As you probably remember from Twelfth Night, Jelena falls in love with Scylla instead. It is, there is a lot more dramatic tension in the fact that Scylla came to Constantinople to woo Apollonia, and now- Apollonius. Todd. <laughs> and now she's trying to woo on Todd's behalf. <laughs> In the meantime, the real Silvio has returned to Cyprus, found out that his sister disappeared, and goes to figure out where she went. Because no one knows where she went. Like, so he had <laughs> to, like... She didn't leave a note? No, she didn't tell them where she went even a little bit. Oh, wow. So Silvio is, like, bouncing around trying to figure out where his sister is and ends up in Constantinople. It is one of the bigger cities in the area, so... Of course, Jelena, she's wandering around town, pining after Scylla... Slash Silvio mistakes the real Silvio for the fake Silvio. Because remember, Scylla was going by Silvio. Yeah. So, <laughs> this is actually a super funny scene. I don't know why I found it so hilarious. It, it's super funny in uh, the Shakespeare. It is, but when you think about the Shakespeare, Viola was going by Cesario, and her brother's name was Sebastian. So, in this one, Jelena, like propositions silvio using silvio's actual name so he's like i don't think i know this person but she's using my name so i might as well this they just sleep together yeah that's great <laughs> and he's just like okay well thanks for the fun night peace <laughs> go look for my sister and like leaves <laughs> Imagine just showing up to a city and someone being like, oh, hey, it's you. It's me. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> now, Silvio leaving is an important difference to note uh, between the play and the story. But like in Twelfth Night, Jelena insists that they are married, that they got married and like consummated the marriage. The revelation that Scylla is a woman comes much slower in the story than it does in Shakespeare, like we see a lot with Shakespeare. The Duke comes to court Jelena himself, like we see in Twelfth Night. Yeah. Except in this instance, Jelena, you know, tells him, oh, we got secretly married and we even slept together and we're definitely a thing now. Sorry, Duke. And the Duke locks Scylla up in his dungeon for betraying him. What? So Jelena is just like, where'd Silvio go? 
first learns that she's pregnant, then learns that Scylla slash Silvio is locked up in a dungeon. So she goes to the Duke and is like, hey, I'm pregnant. I'm going to need my husband back. And so they bring Scylla out and she's like, you got me pregnant. And she's like, most deaf did not. <laughs> I can prove it. And that's what she does. Um, so she asks to speak to Jelena privately. She, when, Once the two women are alone, she shows Jelena that it is impossible for her to have impregnated this woman. So Jelena, fully embarrassed now, comes out and reveals what she saw, that Scylla is in fact a woman. And promptly hides herself away in shame. (laughs) (laughs) She just thinks that she slept with a random guy. I mean, she did. She did, though. The Duke, upon realizing that Silvio is Scylla, is like, hey, why don't we just get married? (laughs) Like what happens in Shakespeare, which, again, is the totally normal reaction for realizing that the man that you thought was dressing you the whole time was, in fact, a woman. And, like, I guess now you might as well marry her. I mean, she knows how to dress you. Nice. Now, um, Silvio, in his travels to find his sister, hears the news of the Duke's marriage. Yeah. To his sister. Yeah. So he's like, cool, I found her. (laughs) And goes back to Constantinople. A great city he remembers fondly. (laughs) To celebrate with his sister and the Duke, because this is a great marriage for her. So while Silvio's there celebrating with his sister and the Duke, um, he he learns about Jelena. <laughs> like, they're like, oh my god, you won't believe what happened to Jelena. <laughs> and he's like, oh. So he goes and marries Jelena and makes it right. Because <laughs> it's also a good marriage for him. Yeah, he should have just done that to begin with. No, he had to find his sister. Listen, listen, I'm all for marrying for love, but like... If what I'm sure she's a duchess or something. He had to find his sister. Sisters find themselves fine. <laughs> listen, listen, he lost his sister, didn't find her, and she ended up married to a duke. Anyway, it just so that's that's how it ends. That's how the story ends. Everybody gets married. I'm seeing a lot of similarities. I think that whenever we are discussing Shakespeare sources, it's important for us to look back and examine on what we can learn about Shakespeare as a writer from this play and and using this source and how he used it and how he changed it. And I have to say, I appreciated as I was reading um, the book by Martin Luce, Luce, I don't know, was how he pinpointed the importance of learning Shakespeare sources. He says, if we are content with a rap perusal a mere impression we lose or destroy a great part of the beauty of his work accurate knowledge must come before appreciation and this is truer of shakespeare than any other writer it will therefore be evident that a study of shakespeare's authorities is essential to a perfect understanding of his work so he he really agrees with the thesis of this podcast because i think it is important especially as we're moving forward to this clearer image of shakespeare as a collaborator and an adapter and not this lone genius in his room that has been pervasive for centuries. Of course, Shakespeare was taking what was meant to be read 
and adapting it for an audience, for a live audience, for a play. This was, you know, kind of mid-career for him. Like what we've seen time and time again, he shortened up timelines, he fleshed out characters, and he added in those secondary plots. He didn't take the time to introduce the Duke and Viola prior to her shipwreck. They don't include the stuff with the captain. They don't. He makes it about this comedic love story. Do they include the rampant homoeroticism that we see in the versions today? Was that authentic to Barnaby? I didn't get as strong of a vibe in the story one, there's just not a lot of dialogue. And two, you didn't get many interactions between the Duke and Scylla like you do in Shakespeare. And what I find interesting about that is that if Rich's story is playing with kind of gender and then the book as a whole is playing with masculinity versus femininity, that there wasn't more interaction. But I also imagine that just made people uncomfortable. Yeah. Although the intensity of male friendships was very different in Tudor England than it is now. So it wouldn't have been as taboo. I mean, yeah, you could hire your buddy to change your clothes. Well, it was more this idea that a true friendship, a true relationship of equals could not happen between a man and a woman because they were not equals. So the epitome of relationships was a male friendship. What we're seeing is it's becoming clear that Shakespeare was an avid reader and a proficient adapter he could take the start of a good story and flesh it out into something that we're still reading today. And Luce or Blue Jay agrees. He was a close reader as he was an assiduous writer. He revised, he enlarged. He never entirely lost sight of the requirements of art. Whether in respect of substance or form, there is no thinness in his work. He can never be accused of literary poverty. Interesting. I think that's an example of fleshing out who Shakespeare was as a writer and what made him a good writer. Yeah, this ability to uh, look at a story and see the core of it, shorten things, expand on something else, and really pull it into our hearts. And create those human characters. Yeah. Now, of course... <laughs> Another common feature of Shakespeare adaptation is plagiarism. Uh, of course. Just straight up. So when we look at his sources such as Hollandshed or Plutarch, he straight up lifts lines like word for word. And there are more sources coming out where we're like, oh, you just straight up copied that. <laughs> but as Luce or Luce puts it, he found little to tempt him in Rich. The material was not good enough. <laughs> and only here and there do we come upon matter or expressions that were found worthy of a place in Twelfth Night. Poor Barnaby. I know, Barnaby tried. He wasn't a learned man. To be fair, Barnaby seems kind of awful. And as we've touched on before, Barnaby was also copying people. But yeah, I think, I think this is an interesting look into Shakespeare as a writer because I think we can almost gain more from his writing ability and his adaptive style when he doesn't just lift stuff. You can look at what he saw value in and also just appreciate the kind of writing he enjoyed because he took it and put it in his place. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com EP41 for even more information on Twelfth Night, Apollonius and Scylla, and Barnaby Rich. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic.
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art.